Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. This is God's word. <sighs> Dear Father, um, God, I'm grateful for uh, the opportunity to be here today. I'm grateful for this church, for everybody here, um, visitors and members alike. Um, yeah, I'm grateful that we have this time that we can dedicate um, on this day just to bring worship to you, to read your word, to sing songs to you, to think of you, to invite you to speak to us, Lord. And we pray that you would. We pray that, uh, I pray that I would just kind of be diminished as the speaker, but that I would just be used as a vessel for you, um, that all of this would be for your glory and for your glory alone, and that for every person here, that they would be able to understand this word that you prepared for them, and that it may, you know, affect something in them, whether it's encouragement uh, when they need encouragement, whether it's conviction when they need to repent or change something. But may your word be uh, just just apply its beautiful presence over us. Uh, may it wash over us like rain. And uh, may we trust you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, I think that one of my favorite things about the Bible is the like the the concept of stories. I really love stories. I love storytelling. I love, you know, the these rises and falls of plots and storylines. I love interesting characters like a ton. I really, really love that. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm loving this series so much. We get to really delve into like these stories and what's happening with these people's lives. And what we're seeing specifically, in fact, what we see from Literally, the beginning of the Bible to the very end is we see these really rich portraits of these individuals. We see, you know, just think of like people like Abraham, where the entire arcs of the Bible are like dedicated to like kind of the rising and descending of this, this one individual um, who becomes like the father of Israel, or, or Moses even. I think Moses is one of the most interesting, captivating characters in the entire Bible. Like, like God himself descended to physically bury Moses when he died. Like that to me, just like, it just like blows my mind. It's incredible to me. And then we think of the New Testament. Obviously, like the layup answer is Jesus. This very obviously like the, the embodiment and, the, and the, the incarnation of God dwelling amongst us. But we also have interesting dudes like Paul, who was, we kind of see his like redemption arc in this story. We see uh, people like Timothy, who's kind of like battling against the, the people whose opinion of him is very, is very low. We see all of these disciples. We see Peter, who's like really dumb, but really admirable. We still kind of root for Peter. We like Peter. And so we see all of these individuals, all of these stories and portraits and depictions of people. And really, it's like a mosaic. It, you're not supposed to look at scripture and see, oh, well, this is about John the Baptist. This is about Isaac, the son of Abraham. What we're supposed to do is see all of these like broken little rocks. And then we take a step back and we see all of these small figures kind of blended into this greater picture, which is the good news of Jesus. 
And so it's incredible that we see all of these people and all of their interests and struggles and longings and failures and how it all morphs into Jesus. And then there's James. James is the guy that we're talking about today. And James doesn't exactly fit into this mold of these deep, rich, detailed portraits that we get. You might be asking, well, John, but James wrote the book of James. It's, that was a different James. And then you might be thinking, but John, James was the brother of Jesus. That was, that was also a different James. Um, but you might be thinking, but, but John, wasn't James really, really pivotal to the Jerusalem council, the first council in church history? That different James. There are three Jameses in the New Testament. One of them was the brother of Jesus. Uh, one of them uh, we call James the Lesser or the son of Alphaeus. We don't really know anything at all about that guy, except that he may have been the James that wrote the book of James. And then we have today's James. Uh, his name was he, he, his title was James the Greater, which uh, doesn't necessarily mean that he was like specifically uh, righteous or even interesting. Uh, usually, when there's like the comparison of like a greater and a lesser, it usually means one was older than the other, or possibly even taller. So maybe James the Greater was like five ten. I don't know. They weren't that tall back then. Maybe he was like six two. Who knows? But we don't really know a whole lot about James. We know that he was the brother of, G- of not, not Jesus. We know that he was the brother of John, um, which had to be like a little bit of a bummer because John seemed to get a lot of like kind of story told about him. He was the beloved apostle. James was the brother of John. Uh, we know that when he, he, was, he was with his brother and a couple of the other disciples when he was called by Jesus and he chose to follow him. We know that like there were a couple stories involving James, none of which were really flattering to him. We know that at one time, he and his brother asked Jesus why he wasn't calling down fire to destroy a Samaritan village for not receiving them. It's not something I would love to have written down in the Bible forever, um, but that was kind of what, what James gets. Another story has him and his brother again asking Jesus if uh, when, when Jesus kind of took over the kingdom, if he and his brother could sit side by side at Jesus's, like kind of like in a position of honor. And again, Jesus was like, I don't really think you know what you're talking about. And so like, but we don't get that much. We have a couple of these stories that are typically lumped in with him and his brother, so we don't really know how much of this was James and how much of it was John. And then we know that he was, was still part of the disciples when Jesus resurrected. We know that when, when Jesus gave the Great Commission and told all of his disciples to spread the good news and to go you know, to the depths of the earth, we know that James was there, and he heard that command, and he, and he obeyed it. And then randomly... Uh, he shows up in Acts after church history tells us that he um, actually started doing mission work in Spain. He, we know that in Acts, he kind of shows back up, maybe just to, you know, say, say what's up to the homies. And then uh, Herod, who's the authority of the area, decides he wants to start persecuting Christians, and James gets his head cut off. And that's the story of James. We don't really know that much about him. Like I said, it's, it's interesting because we have so many figures 
in scripture where we have these like arcs and these intentions, these longings, these desires, all of these things that kind of express who they are as individuals. And then we have James and, and countless other people in scripture who we know had interests and failures and longings and desires and culture and language and all these things. But the full extent of them were kind of just lost to the winds of time. We don't really know what to say about James. And so the question that I had to ask myself was like, what do I say about someone that the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about? That was a little bit of a challenge, but we're going to do our best here. We're going to do our best. I think it's important for us to acknowledge just how much we're missing, that we don't know that much about James. Because a lot of us, especially many of us who are kind of raised in these like Awana VBS circles, we still have this tendency to look at uh, uh, individuals in the Bible like there's these like one-dimensional like storybook characters that have like one positive trait and like that's it. Like Daniel was brave. He was, he was just brave, man. He was, uh, uh, you met him, and you were like, that guy, ooh, courage. I see courage in him. But we don't really see a fuller picture. I think it's important to remember that every single person in the Bible was just that a person, a person with all of these kinds of complexities to them. They had, they had talents. They had best friends. They had ways that they communicated within the language that they were raised in. Some of them used a lot of slang. Some of them used a lot of more formal language. Some of them were really educated. Some of them weren't. They probably had inside jokes with their friends. Like they were, they were people. And I think it's always important for us to start with that. But all of those little nuances about our good buddy, James the Greater, we don't really know much about. And so where do we go from here? Well, there's two big points that I want to try to, try to impress here um, that I want to start with. The first one is this. Um, the passing away of life. The passing away of life. Now, when we think about uh, like church history, and not, not many of us are probably like buffs of church history, but there might be like some knowledge or some awareness we have of like these like heroes of the faith that have, you know, gone before us. We think like the Martin Luthers who, you know, did good things for, for the church. Like, let me just, let me just ask you guys, you know, I've, the last couple sermons, I've been trying to do this little call and response thing. Mike's making fun of me for it, but you know, I want, I want some response from, from the, from the group here. Uh, when you guys think of like non-biblical individuals throughout like Christian history, I gave you an example with like Martin Luther. Who, who do you think of? Just what do you got? Okay. Smart guy. Irenaeus. Wow. But uh, yeah, he's a church father. It's a good one, Zach. Who else? Calvin, good. More. Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer. Ooh, he's a good guy. German guy. All right. Who else? Polycarp. Zach, you're killing me. I'm cutting you off, man. <laughs> Constantine. Yeah. Ooh, controversial. Uh, give me one more. Augustine. Yeah. Good old Augustine. We love that guy. Ne- <laughs> say Nietzsche? Okay. All right. This is why I have to stop right around like five or six responses. People start getting cocky. Um. Yeah, those are great, though. A lot of, lot of important figures. A lot of them, like, really pivotal to uh, early church history or were kind of involved in the politicization of, like, the, the, the Roman Empire at some point. That's where we find, like, dudes like Constantine. Um, now, here's another question. 
one of the oldest churches in the world uh, was part of the Armenian Orthodox tradition. It's, it's actually built in the year 300 AD, and it's been having services almost weekly for the past 1,700 plus years. The Armenian culture actually has one of the richest, most historic versions of Christianity like that we, we've that, that known, to, known to world history. Um, can anyone give me one of our, our good, good brothers or sisters from the Armenian Orthodox tradition? Zach? <laughs> Honestly, I can't, I can't either. I can't either. But that, that's, that's kind of the point. There have been millions, if not tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, if not billions, you know, we're just kind of really crossing our fingers that number is big. But there have been countless believers and in Christ, these people who heard the gospel, who responded to it, who followed Jesus from, from the time they were born with plenty of mistakes and, and stumblings and fallings and failures all along the way, but they trusted in Jesus to their dying breath. And there are millions, I can't even quantify the number of these individuals from, from we think, like our, our American context. But then again, like Armenian context, we have the Coptics, these people in, in Egypt who have been doing this for forever. We have Catholics, Eastern Orthodox. We have the Oriental Orthodox tradition. We have all these people who have been putting their faith in Christ for literally the past 2,000 years. Yet I think that if, if, if I gave each of us a, a, a piece of paper and a bunch of pens, I don't think we could even scratch the surface of these individuals who've been so involved in the body of Christ. That's kind of just how life and history works. The thing about history is you kind of have to pick apart the people who just happens to be really, really significant. But grand significance for most of us is going to wash over. We're not going to be those like monolith superstars. We get James's name in the Bible, we don't really get much else, but think of all the people who didn't get their names at all. Think of the 70. When Jesus was still alive, he sent out a big team of 70 disciples to preach the gospel. This was one of the first teams ever like commissioned out to preach the word. We don't know any of their names. We know that there was probably 70, maybe 72 of them. And these are some of the first people to bring the gospel to foreign areas, and yet their names and legacies and everything was completely lost to history. And that's not a bad thing, but it is something worth noting. The 90th Psalm, it's one of my favorite Psalms, it, it paints this like incredible yet like mildly grim portrait of human life and just how easily it, it, it passes away from us. It says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. The legacy of our human lives is kind of doomed from the start. I mean, it makes sense. History, time, they, they move too fast. They move too fast for us to have any, any semblance of long-lasting legacy. Life itself is just 
way too fragile. Just like this says, we're gone like grass. Another psalm says like vapor, just like, like a breath lost. 150 years from now, we'll be lucky if our families even remember our names, let alone if they remember much about us. And yet, in the midst of this realization is something also equally really magnificent. And it's that while neither history nor scripture itself could tell us the story of this specific dude named James, we do know one thing is abundantly clear, and that's that Jesus knew who James was. Like, Jesus knew him very well. Jesus was the guy who called him. Jesus made eye contact with this dude after he ascended and showed off his scars and talked about plans for church planting. Jesus knew every hair on his head. Jesus knew every longing in his heart. Jesus could see every doubt that he carried. Jesus loved James a lot. Jesus loved James a lot, even though we don't know much about him. This book of life that the scriptures refer to, this book that contains every name of those who have come to faith in Jesus. The book of life to us is going to be full of a lot of blank spaces and a lot of blurred out faces. Uh, but it's important to know that to, to, to our Father, who is good and kind and who loves us a lot, none of these faces are blank and none of these names are, are blurred out. He knows his people very well. He has a knowledge and a love for them that will outlast the constant passing away, this, this rough and aggressive current of time that we're all submitted to. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. So how then do we live knowing that we're all kind of in the midst of this very breathy, very um, temporal, finite, small time of life? How do we live? How do we move forward with that realization? Um, I don't think that James becomes a completely irrelevant source just because we don't know a whole lot of, of, his, of his quirks and tendencies. In fact, I think we can look at James, even the bare bones, things that we know about him, and we can still, we can still do a lot with it. What do we know about James in, in simple terms? You know, that James was just some dude, just a guy with a brother and a dad named Zebedee. We know that at a certain point, Jesus called James to follow him. He said, hey, just, just come around with me. Listen to what I have to say. I'll tell you some things. Some of them you'll like, some of them you won't, but follow me. And James said, okay, I can do that. And then, you know, a whole bunch of things happen, crucifixion, resurrection, all that stuff. And, and, and Jesus is still speaking to this same man. And he says, I want you to make my church your business. I want you to go out. I want you to teach the good news. I want you to love people. And I want you to do all the other things that I told you about as well. And I want you to know that I'm still going to have your back when you mess up. And James said, I, I can do that. Okay, I can do that. And then at a certain point in James's life, again, he was in Spain. I don't even know why he went back to Rome. Maybe he was just, just chatting it up with the guys, reminiscing about old times. But at that point in his life, the, the, the fatal uh, necessity was put on him that he had to give up his life 
literally had to put his head on the block and submit himself to his own execution. And even in that, James said, I can do that. We don't know the difficulty of that. We don't know how, how, how deep that internal struggle was. Maybe like Peter, he resisted it and he fought against it because he was a hot-headed dude. Or maybe like John, he was just like, I love Jesus. I'll do whatever I have to do. But we know the result of his actions. He followed Christ when Christ called him to follow him. He served Christ when Christ called him to serve him. And when he had to lay his life down, he did so obediently. And so this leads us to our second point. Um, Here's our second point. It's the glory of life is not in taking, but laying down. The glory of life is not in taking, but laying down. I think there are oftentimes like two temptations that we have that we kind of receive from the world uh, of what it means to like make something of our lives. Like there's the first temptation that's like, I want to be successful. I want to have a legacy. I want to leave something of myself. I don't, maybe I don't want like a physical monument, like a statue that has me doing like a cool pose, but I want like the, the equivalence of that in like people's minds and like more culturally acceptable ways. Like, We want to make something of ourselves. We want to be, you know, we don't want to be lost to the current of time. We want to to have something long-standing for ourselves. I think the other temptation on the other side is is like we're, we're content to not be legendary. We're not trying to be legendary. I'm trying to do my own thing. We're trying to live quietly, kind of run out the clock on this life, just like, enjoy things for the most part, but, you know, kind of find this like little space of comfort where we can just kind of chill, don't really need challenged, you know, kind of flee from these things that that bother us or or require too much of us and just kind of like, you know, find a nice little little spot to lay down and wait for that, wait for the clock to, to go down to zero for Jesus to scoop up and take us home. And I think that our, our, our lives has to be like kind of a resisting both of these like idols. I, I don't think that our life should be of chasing success. And I don't think that our lives should be of avoiding ambition in a sense. But in living faithfully to Jesus in the lives that we kind of find ourselves in. This is what I see in the life of James. A man who answered Jesus' call to follow him, to serve in his church and to fall to the point of death. James's life was not a life of, of finding any kind of contentment and either success or the lack thereof. He just told Jesus, all right, you tell me what to do then. And you point the direction for me to go in. And James faithfully followed that. And so how do we submit our lives to a life of giving, to a life of laying down and doing so in the areas that Christ has called us to. I think first and foremost, going off my notes, is always dangerous territory. Um, I remember when I was in college, and I was part of this campus ministry, uh, and, you know, all of me, me and, like, a bunch of my friends, all of us, like, 18-year-old Christians, so, you know, just, just a, an eternal well of wisdom, and, uh, and it's like, if you asked us, like, what it was we wanted to do with our lives, it was always, like, I want to be a pastor. Like, like, you talk to 10 dudes in this circle, every single one of them, maybe minus one, 
like nine to 10 of these individuals wanted to be a pastor. And it, it kind of reminds me looking back of like when you ask like a bunch of like elementary school students, like what they want to be. And the first kid says like, I want to be a firefighter. And then all the other kids are like, oh shoot, that's way better. I want to be a firefighter too. Like, I think that there's this misconception that if we want to honestly serve God, if we really want to like pour our lives out and, and lay our lives down for him, we have to like do something that very, very much involves God. You got to be, you got to be a minister. You got to work at a church. You have to, if you're going to work for an organization, make it a Christian organization. School, make it a Christian school. And this is obviously not any kind of like, you know, jab or anything like that to those who did end up in ministry or working in a, church, a Christian circle. Obviously, I myself am guilty of this. And yet I think that we, we need to break ourselves from this limitation that you, you need to be part of something that has Christian at the front of it in order to actually be serving God. I think that's, that's a really lousy way of approaching things. I mean, I don't think there were any Christian tent crafting organizations around in the New Testament time. But I do know that Paul was a tent maker. And I don't think he founded, uh, you know, tent makers for the Lord or anything like that. I think he just made really good tents. And I think he loved people. (laughs) And I think he did everything else that Christ called him to do without this weird, like, separatist, like, I have to isolate myself from this, like, sticky world to do real stuff for Christ. I think we gotta, we gotta kill that. Um, But also, I'm going to get back on my notes before I say something dumb. All right, next. How are we called to follow Christ, and how are we called to lay down our lives? I I think that we have to assess the areas in life that we just have, and then try to respond diligently and selflessly to those things. Easy example is, uh, you know, look at your family situation. Are you married? Do you have kids? Do you have relatives, parents, etc.? Like your your life should be like you should be like looking to what Scripture says about how we should like engage with these types of relationships and then submit ourselves to that kind of framework. Like, I'm not married yet. She's not here tonight, so I can talk candidly. Um, <laughs> I take it easy. Oh, it's going to be recorded too. Shoot. Um, Hi, Annie, if you're listening to this. Um, But one thing I've had to do in my non-marriage relationship, but definitely still relationship, is like there is a lot of death to self that has to happen the closer you get to like any other given individual. Hey, there we go. (laughs) There is... um, like this call and this command that we see within scripture where it's like this mutual submission, laying yourself down, laying your interests down. I also think I'm, I'm becoming so acquainted in this past like 11 months that Annie and I have been together with this idea that love is a choice and not just this like, this like cloud of feeling that just carries you from one day to the next. It's so bogus. Like you actually, like the hardest thing is when you're like, I don't really feel X, Y, and Z, but I've still got to do this thing. Like, I, I'm like this. I just imagine there's just like this string of like corporate, like suit wearing demons who work in some evil factory in the sky or in hell or whatever. And they're just typing up this stuff like left and right. And they're producing all these terrible movies 
that are just reinforcing this idea that like feelings are, are, are the gospel. Feelings are what you got to be chasing for. And it's like, nah, dude, sometimes you're not going to feel it, but you still got to do it. Sometimes, ooh, 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 okay. All right. You guys are like giving me power. All right. This is, this is the call. This is the responsibility. And this is something that I'm realizing again in my relationship is that like, if I am choosing to allow my feelings, whether they're my feelings for this woman that I love or my feelings for uh, uh, friends or individuals or my parents or, or anyone else, if I'm allowing my feelings and my gut to become this like grand authority over how I act, one, that's selfish because I said my feelings, so I'm putting me first. And, and two, that's, that's not what submission to Jesus looks like. That's not laying my life down. That's picking my life up and saying me first. And we have to not do that. That's not to say that you as an individual are irrelevant in any kind of situation or relationship or interaction because sometimes, if, I mean, shoot, if you're in a situation with someone, let's say it's a romantic relationship where there's like a lot of unhealthy, um, like even like abusive type stuff, you don't just like say, well, I got to die to myself. No, like you have to expect that person to die to themselves too. And, uh, and I think that, that we've been, when by we, I mean just uh, members of the pulpit have been a little bit too careless with saying, you know, die to yourself, die to yourself, die to yourself, but which, which has actually created avenues for abuse in church situations to uh, flourish. And we have to say, nah. Anyways, I need to keep moving. Um, do you have children? Do the same. Like, show your children with, like, not just words, but also with actions, what love looks like. And here's the thing, apologize. Stop, confession is not something we just do to God. If you wrong someone and you wrong God, you don't bypass the person to apologize to God. Confession should be all across the board. I'm just saying, like, as someone who has more than enough experiences that can kind of assure me when I say this, it is a profound thing to be a parent that is willing to apologize to their children. It is a profound and beautiful thing to happen because we're supposed to live lives of confession. We're not, we're not, we're not good at stuff sometimes. Sometimes we just are wrong. We just mess up. We need to be able to confess, not just to God, absolutely to God. Don't bypass that part either. But, be, but, but train that muscle that teaches you to say, hey, I just need to tell you, I'm sorry. I, I apologize. What I did was wrong and I would like, I would love it if you could forgive me. Say it to people. Say it all the time. Say it when you don't mean it. Keep going. Um, maybe you don't have a spouse or children. That would technically be me. That's totally fine. I've realized that uh, one thing I didn't notice in all of my uh, grumpy, discontent single years before I started my relationship that I'm in is that 
you don't really realize how much opportunity you have to develop and live in like a community of people until you start getting into a relationship. Like you just have an amount of time and an amount of energy that you kind of have to lose once you get involved with somebody else. And so I would say, and I'm grateful because I did have a lot of really wonderful communities that I could like kind of give my life to and be a part of prior to getting into my previous relationship. But I would say that... um, that I highly recommend it. It's a good thing. Also, Christ designed the church to be an environment where we would constantly be encouraging each other in the walk that we're going through because it gets hard and it gets discouraging and it gets difficult. The road that we're walking is full of thorns and barbed wire sometimes. We're not meant to do it by ourselves. Be around people who can pray for you and then pray for them too. That's the giving thing. Give of your time. Give of your energy. Or I would even say, like, you know, we talked about family. We talked about community. I would also say church. James didn't just give himself to uh, uh, the Lord and to, and to the people around him. He gave himself to the church. We, we have to remember, when he was killed, he was visiting. For whatever reason, we don't know He was visiting the church of his friends. There was still a a, a longing and a love that he had for the church, even the churches that he himself had started. We don't want, like, like, as I'm saying this, I'm not saying it because, like, I don't know. Where am I going here? Being, I said this when 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 we first started, being an American in church Sure, there's, there's a billion churches all over the place. We can basically pick and choose wherever we want to go. The, most, of the, most of the metrics we have for choosing a church are pretty close to how we choose a gym. Do we like the music? Do we like the person that does all the talking? Do I like how close it is to my house? Like, it's very, it's very easy. We've slipped into this very, like, consumer-y way of choosing church. And then when we participate in church, it's just, we just, we're just there. We just sit. We just watch. We just leave. Like, this is not the church that that Christ actually gave us to have. This is not the church that Jesus designs to be an hour of time that's probably shorter than most of the movies we've watched this week just just to watch some guy wave his arms around. Like, that's not the design that Christ had for church. There's supposed to be a depth, and there's supposed to be a sacrifice We should be giving, again, laying ourselves and our lives down, even for the church communities that we have. Um, Mission doesn't have a slogan as a church. If we did, we could probably think of a couple humorous options. I, I think the running slogan for mission that I would use right now is, Mission Church, we really try not to talk about tithing. Um, We do. It's super uncomfortable. And we've all, I mean, I'd say at least many of us, I myself definitely have, we've been to churches with that everlasting building fund. It's been 15 years, Pastor. What's getting built out here? We don't even have a lot yet. Like, you know, it, it, it's, it's uncomfortable talking about, like, giving to a church. Sometimes It's uncomfortable talking about giving at all because in, in, in the U.S. and the West, we have this, like, idol that's like, don't ask people for money. That's theirs. We shouldn't, we shouldn't ask people to give 
Because that means that we ourselves as the asker is being selfish. I still feel this like, like discomfort, even if I'm asking something for something totally reasonable. Because we have, we've submitted ourselves to this mindset that says that like, you don't ask for money because every you are entitled to use your money however you want. And asking someone to use their money in a way they don't want to is wrong. When in reality, like, we see, like, the whole story of God's people from Old Testament to New Testament, they were just giving left and right because they knew it wasn't theirs to hoard. They knew that the value of what they possessed was not in the, 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 the size of their savings accounts, but it was in what they were able to give because they knew that it wasn't theirs, it was God's. So who are we to hoard what God has given to us? I hit my time limit, I'm done talking about tithes. <laughs> but, also, but, but all that to say... Um, we see all of these areas and we, and we see all of these practical places in which we, we are called to give. We are called to lay our lives down. Lay, lay your lives down for your family. Family's tough. Family's super tough. And Jesus is walking with you in it. You're not, he's not sending you out there by yourself. It's, it's, it's a struggle worth having. Lay, yourself, lay your life down for your friends. friends. Friends are lousy sometimes. They are. It can get real easy to, 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 to hop from friend group to friend group when, when conflict arises or when something just gets uncomfortable. Don't do that. Don't do that. If you've got to apologize, apologize. If you've got to confront somebody on something difficult, say what you have to say. Seek reconciliation, actual reconciliation that involves confession, repentance, forgiveness. Don't just gloss over stuff. I know we're, we're in a culture where we hate confrontation. I hate confrontation. I want to put a mirror in that chair so I can talk to myself right now. We still got to do it. It's not real friendship. It's not real love in relation if you're, if you're avoiding every difficult thing, especially when Christ has given us so much to say about that. Give your lives for your church. I promise I'm not making commission on what I, what I said five minutes ago. I'm not. Like, we don't want your guys' lives and energy and time and, yeah, money, because we are, you know, building these monuments to ourselves. We're not putting a statue of Andy on top of the school bus outside, I promise. We're, we're doing this because we have devoted ourselves as leaders, as servants of God who have been put in this position of ministry to do things that you guys may genuinely not have the time or energy to do yourselves. When we're able to do things to serve and to love, like whether it's you guys inwardly towards the church or outwardly towards the church, that is a thing that we are specifically given the ability to do and you guys may not be in that position, so, so, so help that process, you know, oil those wheels a little bit so that we can keep moving towards our goal, which is to glorify God in the midst of Tucson and beyond. The church doesn't necessarily need any more heavy hitters. You guys may never be called to oppose the Aryan controversy. In fact, probably not. I don't think any of you guys or, or myself or mission included will be leading the next reformation out of, out of Germany or France or Switzerland. In fact, I would say I don't think many of us here 
or I would say even any of us probably, we'll probably we'll have to martyr ourselves and give, lay our lives down literally, just like the disciples were beheaded and killed. But we will have to make these like small little actions, these small little dedications to Christ. I want to go into one story about James that we mentioned earlier. Um, and I want to use a little bit more detail to it. Uh, when, uh, when, when the disciples were traveling, James and John's mom came up to Jesus and asked, hey, Jesus, when you, when you like start to rule your kingdom, is it cool if my sons sit down at your left and right hand? This is a particularly embarrassing thing to happen because the way that Jesus directly responds to James and John implies that they had potentially asked their mom to like say that on their behalf. Like, mom, he's not going to listen if I ask. Can you ask him, please? Like, that's just really not, really not a great thing to be written in the Bible for thousands of Christians to read. But Jesus challenged them when they asked this. He asked if they would be able to drink of the same cup, which was like this symbol of suffering. Will you two who are asking me this great thing, are you, are you actually willing to suffer in the way that I'm about to suffer? And they said, yeah. And I believe they were genuine. They were being earnest about this. But Jesus said, look, like, I, like the, the, the way this stuff works, we, we don't, no one calls dibs on who gets to sit where in heaven. It's about the place that's prepared for you. And they were like, oh, okay. The other disciples heard about this conversation and they got really mad. They're like these two punks talking about who gets to sit in the cushy, you know, corner office in heaven, these two. And Jesus responds to them and he's like, you know, these leaders that you guys see, these like Roman figures, these emperors, these governors, you know, when they, when they embody power, they use it to lord it over people. They use power for the sake of having power over others. And Jesus said, but I'm telling you, it's actually the opposite. If you want to be great, you have to serve. The, the, the greatest man is actually the one that serves everyone else as the least. And then he says, I, even I myself am giving my life, my crown of glory, so that others may have life. It's incredible that like Jesus was not just this like, I mean, because Jesus very well could have been, as God, this finger constantly saying like, do this, do that, lay your life down, die, you know, repent, forgive that person. Every hard task he could just put on our shoulders and have the authority to do so as the creator of the world. But Jesus actually led us into this life of giving, this life of laying ourselves down, he led us into that not just by saying it, but by doing it and saying, just, just do what I'm doing, man. Like, wait like three days and see what happens. Just, just follow me. Just keep following me. And so I think that we have to continue to remember that this call and, I, and th- honestly, this, this whole message was a lot more practical, a lot more dewy than I typically like for my messages to be. And that's because I don't want to like twist this narrative to where it's like, if you want to be a Christian, if you want Jesus to love you, do these things. When in reality, even when Jesus was saying this to his disciples, 
They've been following him for at least a couple years at that point. Yeah, Judas was one of them. But I think Jesus knew that, like, these guys are dedicated to me. They are following me. I love them. They have my love already. They have nothing left to earn. So I'm saying with the life that you have, with the life that I have given to you, this is what you should do. This is how you should lay your life down. Not to earn my love, but because you have it. So take the life that I have given you with my love and lay your life down like I did because that is what my design for this life should be. And the perfect segue for this is, is into the Lord's Supper, you know. It's the perfect remembrance of the body and blood of Jesus. It's a perfect, who was a perfect and willing sacrifice made on our behalf. Jesus was the, as God, he was, he was the perfect picture of entitlement. He, he was the king of every king of every king. He was himself eternal and perfect, Why would he ever need to condescend himself to walk around with bones that ache and with skin that tears, with a back that probably hurts? He wasn't sleeping in Tempur-Pedic beds out there. Like, Jesus subjected himself to all these things that the king of kings never should have to because of his desire to not just bring good news, but to embody the good news by dying in the place of people who didn't deserve it of dying so that we could be washed in all of our deepest, darkest places. And the perfect picture of that, that all of us get to not just observe, but to partake in, is the Lord's Supper, where we get to taste of the bread, which is his body. We get to drink of the wine, which is his blood. And we get to remember that Jesus laid this way for us long ago that we should follow him. Not with a hard word of commandment, but through an example of, here, I'm going I'm to do this, of giving us life. So when we come to the Lord's table, we receive the reassurance that the forgiveness, the love, the goodness of God is there from today until glory. Let's pray. Dear Father, I, uh, I'm grateful for your, your kindness and your love to us. I'm grateful, for, uh, I'm grateful for unspectacular disciples like James because all of us, Father, in some way are unspectacular. All of us long and desire to serve and to know you. And so, Lord, uh, as we prepare for just two minutes right now of silence, as we prepare just for two minutes uh, to speak to you, may you just May you just be there with us. May you help us to know what we need to say to you. May you help us to bring out whatever we ought to confess, or maybe it's just something that we've been kind of holding for the past week, or maybe for a lifetime, God. Uh, help us to, uh, to speak to you now. So, Lord, right now, please just give us two minutes of silence that we would come to you and speak, and may you speak to us as well as we confess to you.